episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. So I'd like to welcome you to today's presentation, Child Development 101, the middle school years. This is an ongoing presentation or series that we've um, been working on, starting with infancy, toddlerhood, um, elementary school, talking about middle school. We'll finish up with the high school years. Because a lot of us, if we're not dealing with child clients, we're dealing with parents who have children, or we're dealing with, guess what, people who once were children. I know, it's hard to believe. Everybody was a kid at one point. They just may not remember how to be a kid anymore. So what we want to do is look at what are the particular developmental tasks at each stage. If these tasks are not accomplished, what's the potential fallout from it? And how can we prevent it from happening um, through effective parenting and all that kind of stuff? But if it did happen, how can we remediate it? So we're going to review the de developmental tasks that are supposed to be accomplished at this stage. Examine how their thinking patterns in middle school are different than that of both toddlers and even elementary school kids and adolescents. Explore ways to assist children in enhancing their self-esteem. And we're going to introduce in this particular presentation Kohlberg's theory of moral development. Kohlberg's theory is a lot less tied to age and has a lot fewer stages um, in, in some ways than uh, Piaget or Erickson. So we're introducing Kohlberg here because at this point, children are able to make a leap to the next stage of moral development. And so we'll get right into Kohlberg. Level one is your pre-conventional morality, which is zero to nine years roughly. So, I mean, it encompasses a little bit of elementary school, um, and then kids start jumping into um, conventional morality at, at 10 years old, which is roughly fourth grade, um, but we're going to start talking about it here. So, up to nine years, kids have no personal code of morality. They're not thinking, is, is this the right thing? Is this the moral thing to do? Um, they're not questioning authority. Moral code is shaped by the standards of adults and the benefits and consequences of compliance or non-compliance. So the little kid is going, let's see, I know that I could potentially get in trouble if I do this. Now, are the benefits of doing it anyway going to outweigh the costs if I get punished? Um, they're smart. I mean, kids are really smart in the way they think. So it's important to... Um, Kind of give credit where credit is due in stage one your earlier stage of development if a person is punished they must have done wrong this is how the child thinks about it which makes sense what we've learned about children that are under nine years of age they tend to think very dichotomously and very egocentrically so if somebody's punished then they must have done something wrong they're focused on one one aspect they did something wrong they got punished uh, so it's centrated, it's egocentric, and it's dichotomous. You know, there's, there's no other ex explanation for what happened. Um, so this is really in, in line with pre-operational thought. As they get a little bit older, stage two of pre-conventional morality is individualism and exchange. And in your quiz, there's, I'm not going to ask you specific details about what stage came when. What I want you to do is get the overarching concepts 
and that's true for any quizzes that you will take with us. So don't get yourself all bogged down in remembering which stage is at what level and yada, yada. Basically, little kids think dichotomously, egocentrically, and they think about, is it going to benefit me? How, you know, if I do this, what are the risks versus, um, risk versus rewards for my benefit? So then stage two is individualism and exchange. They start to recognize that there can be multiple right views. And remember, we talked about this a little bit with elementary school students, starting to be able to take other people's perspectives and going, you know what, I can see where Johnny might have thought that. There might be multiple explanations for something. So they're starting to get out of that dichotomous thinking a little bit. They're starting to be able to consider multiple outcomes. They are able to understand that different, individu- different individuals have different viewpoints. And this is really true of concrete operational thought. Um, they can understand that mom thinks one thing and I think something else. Doesn't mean that either one of us is wrong. Doesn't necessarily mean either one of us is right. And that's when it starts getting a little bit hinky at this age, trying to figure out what all that means. But once they move into conventional morality, um, they've started to internalize moral standards of valued adult role models. So when we say, where did you get your values from? Who taught you that? What did you learn? We really want to look at what were the influences in this child's life? Because this is now what they're trying to decide. Remember, before they were able to say, okay, we've got two different perspectives, I don't know which one's right, which one's wrong necessarily. Um, However, you know, generally they're they're focusing on what parents have said. Level two, they're starting to be exposed to other children. They're taking in more media. They're taking in more input. And they start identifying valued adult role models. It may be parents. It may be teachers. It may be their best friend, Sally. Um, You know, kind of depends on the age, but nine and up. Peers start playing a bigger role, and so does the media. Authority is internalized but not questioned. So any authority figures, your your teachers, your parents, your pastors, your ball coaches, are likely not going to be questioned a whole lot at this age um, or at this stage. And this is nine-plus years, which means it can go forever. These are people who take in, you know, somebody tells them something and they take it for, you know, that's just the way it is without questioning it. And one of the things that we find with a lot of our clients who have low self-esteem is they've taken in some of these messages and they've not questioned it and that now they're not able to feel like they live up to these messages. For example, um, in order to be lovable, you need to be successful. And being successful means being a CEO of a company or rich or, you know, driving the best car. And so they take in all of these things and they're figuring out their values. You know, we can think in terms of values and morality as they go together. What's right? What's what am I going to strive for? But they've taken in these values and they're not questioning them. So they're going, okay, well, in order to be lovable, I need to have all these things. And then. You know, they get to be adults and, you know, maybe they're not able to be a CEO. Maybe they're not able to buy a Lamborghini. So does that mean they're not lovable? At this stage, reasoning is based on the norms of the peer group. So, you know, 
middle school peer group, high school peer group, when you get into adulthood, um, whatever your peer group is there, whether it's the people at work, the people um, that you socialize with, the people on your bowling league, whoever your peers are, are going to influence what your values are at that point in time. And yes, our values can change. Um, the peer group also includes significant others. So if you end up getting um, married or in a uh, domestic partnership, and then you have peer group that happens to be in-laws. And whether you take in those values or not depends on your level of uh, development in terms of are you willing to question authority if your in-laws say something do you take that as you know a hundred percent across the board what is um if your parents say something do you take it that way at the beginnings of this stage so we're still talking you know middle school to high school a lot of reasoning is based around developing good interpersonal relationships and desire to be seen as a good person by others. So basically, you want to ask, in your peer group, who's, who's a good person? What makes them a good person? Tell me about some of your role models and what makes them good people. That gives you an idea about what, where their values are laying. Um, and then encouraging them to maybe look at those values and question them in later life, you know, in middle school, in uh, high school. As parents, we can help children navigate this a little bit as they come home and they start um, telling you what the values are in their school or, you know, I have to have these special pair of shoes or I have to have this or I have to do that. Um, you know, we can talk to them and ask them, what do you think about that? Is that important? To you or is it important to your peer group and it's really hard for children in middle school especially um, and even early high school to separate the two but in both middle school and high school children really are seeking that external validation they're trying to figure out their place in the world and we'll get to erickson in a minute but they're trying to feel competent they're trying to feel lovable and accepted so they really want to take in whatever the values are of the peer group without question because they don't want to face rejection. Stage four, maintaining the social order, comes later, like college age, but I threw it in here just to kind of give you a prelude to where people may be going. Awareness of the wider rules of society and judgments concern upholding the law and avoiding guilt. So as people get older, they start to become aware of you know, the laws, the rules outside of just their small microcosm. They start reading the news and becoming more aware of that sort of thing. But as far as kids go, as far as the series is concerned, we really stop at that good interpersonal relationships. That's where a lot of preteens and teens' um, energies and interests are focused. Ages 7 to 11. Now, again, remember I said there's some, some overlap here. Um, most of this is, is elementary school. Children are being able to evaluate things on more than one characteristic. Okay, that's great. So they're developing this skill. By the time they get into middle school, they should be able to start evaluating things in a complex array. They're able to use inductive reasoning, drawing general conclusions from personal experiences, score. They're really good at this by now. They're still developing deductive reasoning. And 
it takes a while for a lot of people to develop deductive reasoning or the ability to use a general principle to predict an event. Um, so abstract and hypothetical thinking, even through high school, is still being developed. So these general principles that we're, we're throwing out there in terms of society, in terms of living, in terms of quality of life, um, make it really hard for them or they, they, they struggle bringing it down to what does this mean for me? So as parents, as teachers, we can bring it back down for them or help them bring it back down and go, okay, so what does this mean for you? Um, in terms of later life, you know, reparenting or, or re-whatever um, uh, that we're talking about, children who have had faulty inductive or deductive reasoning are probably going to have a lot more cognitive distortions. You'll probably hear a lot more all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization, um, egocentric and thinking and personalization. So as clinicians, we can help them identify those. Now, formal operational, abstract thinking and hypothesizing begin. And you can see the little wheels turning. My experiences led me to predict. This is inductive reasoning. So when I've gone to a new school in the past, it's been scary, but it's been okay. Or when I've gone to a new foster home, my experiences have led me to predict. Deductive reasoning would say, and and we'll take the foster home example, deductive reasoning would say, as a general rule, foster homes are supposed to be safe places where I can grow and, you know, basically hang out until mom or dad can get me back. So that's the general principle that we hope is true. Helping children figure out if whatever happens doesn't fit their reasoning, helping them figure out why that happened is important because throughout life we're going to have outliers that that don't happen. Um, Think about stoplights. You know, stoplights, you drive up to a stoplight, it's red then it turns green after a little while. But what happens when you drive up to a stoplight and it's red, and then it blinks red, and then it blinks red, and you're like, no, 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 it's red, yellow, green. You know, that's how it's supposed to go. But the outlier, the general principle, is it's supposed to be red, then green, then yellow, then red again. But when that doesn't happen, how do you work that into your system? When something you expect to happen doesn't happen, how do you accommodate that for children you know 11 to 14 which is really what we're talking about with uh, middle school the data that they have to use is really quite limited so they have difficulty making a lot of hypotheses or at least accurate hypotheses because they don't have a lot of knowledge you know if you've only driven a few times and you've never and you've always driven during the day then you may ne- never have seen a stoplight that was, you know, out of service or, you know, on flashing. So they don't have that information. It doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means they didn't have that knowledge. In school, children are starting to be encouraged to develop their reasoning by the introduction of things like algebra and science labs, where they are taking a general principle. And hypothesizing what will happen if, based on these other theories. Socially, um, again, we're still staying with reasoning. Children may think something to the effect of, my experiences with group, this group led me to expect 
you know, to be treated fairly from anyone like them. So this is a stereotyping activity or a stereotyping um, procedure. One of the things, activities that you can do in group or with an individual is put up uh, posters or give them worksheets and have general titles that are there, like teachers, and have them write down everything they know about teachers because this is their general rule. This gives you an idea of what experiences they've had with teachers. And then you can talk about exceptions to those rules and why did that happen. Encouraging them to look at the fact that, especially when dealing with humans, it's really hard to lump everybody together because there are always outliers. Um, The general rules. You can have an activity, and, and again, this is more fun to do in group, where people list general rules. And you want to make it a little bit more specific, otherwise they're all over the place. But you can say, general rules at school. Or as a general rule, this is how people interact. And have them brainstorm what they know about meeting new people, about starting a new school, about... Um, using alcohol and drugs, you know, any topic that you want to talk about that's going to relate to their development, how they feel they fit in, um, their interaction with other people, all of those have general rules. We've created schemas about all of those things. So let's start pulling those schemas out and challenging them. And we may find they are spot on. So awesome. We also may find that they are somewhat inaccurate. And when you have multiple people sharing their general rules, a lot of times you find that their general rules conflict. And that gives you an opportunity to talk about, well, why might this be true for Sally, but not true for Sam? You can do this at home, you know, if you've got kids and they have different opinions of things. My, my kids just came back from a vacation and uh, one had a really good time and another is just stressed out as can be. And They can't understand each other's perspective to save their life. So talking about different perspectives and how one person had a really good time and the other one is just like, oh my gosh, that was so stressful. What was different for each of them? And in what way was it stressful for one versus the other? Another general rule that we talk about um, in with regard to maybe social situations is no good deed comes unpunished. A lot of people say that, but is that true? And if we teach people this general rule, how is that affecting their psyche? If they do something good, then they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. That increases anxiety. Um, If they think, well, no good deed, deed goes unpunished, so, you know, hands off, I'm not doing anything for anybody else, how does that affect their interactions with other people and the world? Another general rule, if you want to say, is karma. You know, some people will talk about karma, what goes around comes around, uh, however you want to talk about it. But then if they see somebody do something really bad and there aren't any immediate consequences or maybe never are any consequences, how do they rectify that in their mind? So encouraging children to start learning how to um, question things that are going on, and not to rely 100% on general rules, because a lot of times there are exceptions. At this age, there's also a lot of emotional reasoning and blaming. 
children in middle school, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out where they belong. They're trying to develop a sense of confidence. They're going to fail sometimes. They're going to have hiccups sometimes. Um, they, they're going to have embarrassments, which for a child, and, and most middle schoolers still don't have really strong coping skills because, hey, you know what? They're not developed yet. And that's not a knock against the kid. That just means they tend to be more emotionally reactive. So their emotional reasoning starts coming out. They feel bad. They feel devastated. Um, So they may start blaming other people or they may change their behavior. You know, if, you know, maybe they were in class and they passed gas and, oh my gosh, people heard it. Everybody laughed and I am never going to be able to go to school again. If you're a parent or you've worked with kids, you've probably heard a similar scenario. So that is a prime example of emotional reasoning. Something happened. They were devastated. In their mind, it is totally prominent, and they just keep playing it over and over and over again. Um, So they're stuck. And the only logical explanation or resolution they can come to is just never to go to school again. Can't do it. I need to to transfer schools. So talking about uh, the reality of you know, what's going to happen and exploring it with the child, exploring how are they going to handle it if somebody brings that up again uh, is going to be important. Also encouraging them to not uh, get centrated, not get focused on that one thing. The fact that, okay, yeah, that was embarrassing. I wonder if anybody else did anything embarrassing that day and how likely is it that everybody will remember, and it's going to be important enough for them to remember tomorrow or a week or or a month from now. Now we move on to Maslow. And remember, all of these things kind of overlap because Maslow talks about our basic needs, our biological needs, our safety needs, our love and belonging, our self-esteem, and then self-actualization is off the screen. But when we're talking about middle schoolers, they are still dealing with and developing their self-esteem, their sense of love and belonging, not only love, not only being loved by others, but being able to love and like themselves and be okay in their own skin, which is really hard when they're growing as quickly as they're growing and they'll have some awkward moments and they start having breakouts and their voices, you know, may be changing and there's all kinds of stuff going on that can be really overwhelming for kids and you know their coping skills aren't super developed yet so all of this seems just so vivid to them what can we do as parents adults we can help them develop an effective independent sleep routine so they know when they need more sleep there are going to be times that they're going through a growth spurt and they need more sleep they will be able to figure out how to identify that and helping them really start Learning about sleep hygiene now is crucial. Um, Nutrition, they need good building blocks for healthy body and brain. Reminding them, we, we started this in elementary school, but continuing to remind them to be mindful of eating for hunger. And if they're having particular cravings, maybe talk with you about it to figure out if there's something particular that they may need. Because, you know, as growing, rapidly growing little people, sometimes they're Uh, needs for certain minerals or vitamins or whatever go up and down 
So maybe we can have more healthy foods in the house that provide those foods, provide those minerals. At this age, we can start making them aware of the impact of stimulants and sugar on their system. High C fruit drinks, I mean, any of your fruit drinks, even if they're not um, like fruit punch, if they're apple juice, have a lot of at least fruit sugar in them. So how does that affect that particular child? Make them aware that chocolate is a stimulant. Um, Things like Coca-Cola have caffeine in them. So they need to be aware of how that affects them and also how it affects their sleep. If they're drinking, you know, regular caffeinated sodas an hour before bed, that's probably going to interrupt their sleep quality. Encourage them to get out and get sunlight. It helps set their circadian rhythms and it increases their vitamin D. You know, these are all things we're doing preventatively. But retroactively, um, we can also have people do it. If we have adults that came in and they haven't learned how to um, effectively get good sleep. And just any sleep isn't good sleep. We want to make sure that they're getting good quality sleep with, you know, a couple hours of deep sleep in there. So how do you do that? What do you need to do? Um, we can encourage them to, to look at that. And I have other presentations on sleep hygiene, so we won't go into that now. We can encourage them to educate themselves about what their body needs now. Um, if they're seeing us, they're probably experiencing some depression, some anxiety, something going on, which prompted them to come see a therapist. So we might want to have them talk with a nutritionist or talk with their doctor to make sure they're eating a well-balanced diet that supports the formation of the neurotransmitters Um, and encourage them to get sunlight because uh, seasonal affective disorder is real. And uh, for people who work inside all day long, they can experience symptoms of seasonal affective disorder if they're in a building that has like no outside windows. I worked in a building um, for many, many years where the inner core that I worked in had no access to the outside. So you didn't know if it was raining, if it was sunny, if you couldn't tell, which means your body couldn't tell either. And we also want to make sure they get plenty of vitamin D because inadequate vitamin D has also been linked to anxiety and depression. Sunlight helps with that. Uh, Again, if it's, you know, you live somewhere like Oregon where it's really rainy a lot or it's just been a particularly rainy period, Uh, or it's winter, encourage them to talk with their physician to get their vitamin D levels measured. Medical care. If you're in pain, everything else just starts falling down after a period of time. I mean, we can deal with pain for a day or two or three, but if you're in pain a lot or seemingly all the time, uh, it's important to get that looked at because it affects how you sleep. It affects your um, ability to focus. For children, As they grow, and like I said, they're growing really fast, and they can grow kind of in spurts, and they get aches and, you know, kinks and this and that. Um, That's normal. So helping them figure out stretching and exercise and those sorts of things is good. Um, But if they have persistent pain or they have inordinate pain or they have pain that's keeping them from sleeping, like maybe gastric reflux, making sure that they get the medical care they need so they can be well-rested preventing a lot of vulnerabilities and emotional dysregulation when they go to school and have to deal with all the input. Encourage exercise for stress relief, self-esteem building, to raise serotonin levels, 
and again, help them figure out how to work within this body that's theirs. We went over those last time, so I'm not going to belabor it this time. Now, safety. Safety is becoming more of an issue uh, at this age because children are a lot more attuned or at least a lot more interested in what their peers think about them. So there's a lot more listening to words that are said. There's a lot more paying attention to nonverbals. If somebody gives you a, a sideways look in the hallway, many kids will take that very, very personally and feel um, embarrassed or feel ostracized or feel, you know, however they feel. So it's important we help them understand that this is a time where there's going to be a lot of emotional ups and downs. So what can we do about it? As parents and caregivers, if we are in this early parenting stage where we're raising the child, uh, we can try to eliminate as much low-grade chronic stress as possible. Now, this can be from home stress. You know, if there are bills, uh, financial issues, marital issues, whatever, take it away from the kids. They don't need to be privy to all that because kids may hear something that's, you know, a two on a scale of one to ten as far as, you know, importance or devastation. But in their mind, it's a ten because they don't have the ability to scale it and figure out, oh, my gosh, um, you know, this is going to be a problem or it's not going to be a problem. Eliminate that. If you watch the news together, which, you know, is fine, is great. You know, some people really advocate for it. And if your kids are on the Internet, uh, supervised or unsupervised, it's important to be able to process with them what it all means. You know, if something happens, you know, there's a bombing or a this or a that, um, or the stock market takes a dump or whatever it happens, what does that mean for that child? Help them bring it back and say, okay, in the big scheme of things, you know, this may be unfortunate, but for me, it's not really going to make a difference, or it is, and this is what I need to do. If there are um, events, you know, like I said, bombings, anything like that, like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, both of those, the media really re-traumatized a lot of children uh, because they were constantly playing this stuff. And even though the older children knew it wasn't happening over and over again, it kept this tragic, tragic event just paramount in their mind and kept them thinking about when is it going to happen to me or am I safe? So we definitely want to look at um, monitoring and processing what our children are exposed to that may cause them chronic stress, that may cause them to worry that they're going to lose their house or they're going to get killed or, you know, some of those big things that unfortunately our kids worry about today. Um, if the person is, is an adult and was exposed to low-grade chronic stress when they were growing up, they may have some adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction. You can Google that. Um, and it's, this is very true in people who have PTSD. So you want to look and see, is their stress response system responding? And, uh, or are they having panic attacks because their stress response system is starting to malfunction or they're depressed because they've just been so stressed for so long, their bodies turned down the sensitivity and said, I, I got no more to give. You're just going to have to, I got no more happy. I got no more sad, which is basically the body saying, I don't have any more norepinephrine, um, that 
I can use to balance out everything else. So we want to help people figure out, is there something they can do to fix this, even if they were exposed to it? Um, and Dr. Gabor Matei, I also linked to his video in the additional resources, just a fascinating physician, does a lot of discussion of the impact of low-grade chronic stress on the ch child and adolescent brain. Fabulous series. If you want to watch it, it's on um, YouTube. As adults, can we completely undo all the damage? That's unknown. But as adults, if we know that there was damage done, we can remediate it quite a bit. So people can live happy, healthy lives and recover from a lot of the stress if they realize that they've never had a recovery period. Because most people go from a chronically stressful childhood and adolescence to a very stressful adulthood. And there's no breathing room. There's no, okay, thing, thing, things are good. Uh, so we want to help them figure out how can they recover. Uh, we want to help them protect themselves from emotional harm. So being mindful of what is it that's important to me and how am I feeling? Because we are more vulnerable to emotional harm if we are vulnerable. If you're tired, if you're sick, if you're already stressed out, um, we need to start teaching kids, you know, and as, as young as knee-high to a grasshopper, however old that is, when you're feeling not so good, how can you take care of yourself? This isn't gluttonous. This isn't self-serving. Well, kind of is self-serving. But it's in order to help you be the best you you can be. Because you can only run on empty for so long before you finally just kind of run out of gas. Teach them distress tolerance. Uh, some of the activities that work really well with kids are uh, my favorite. <laughs> four, three, two, one. Identify four things in the room you see. Identify three things you hear two things you smell, and one thing you feel. This forces them to kind of get out of whatever that is that's swirling and focus on something else that's in the here and now. It's also a great activity for people who have flashbacks with PTSD. If they can get themselves focused on the, the here and now, which is safe as opposed to the out there, wherever that was, that was not. Um, so distress tolerance, that's one activity they can do. They can also focus on breathing. Google distress tolerance. You'll come up with a whole bunch of activities. Pick one or two or three. Have the person try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, try something else. And kids are not going to be as um, persistent about finding interventions that work for them. So as parents, it's incumbent upon us to go, how did that work? If it didn't work, why didn't it? You know, tell me what felt weird about that. And then give them something else to try. Interpersonal effectiveness and communication skills. It's kind of sounding like DBT again, isn't it? We want to help them figure out how to make friends, but also how to interpret other people's behavior because it's not always about you. Um, how can you effectively communicate? How can you create those win-win situations that will help keep you safe? We also want them to use that when they're communicating with their, themselves. I always touch the back of my head because I'm thinking about the voice in the back of their heads. That when they're telling themselves, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're this, you're that. It's important for us as, as parents to reinforce that they are good enough and help them develop effective communication skills um, inside and outside of their own head. 
this website here, dbtselfhelp.com, excellent articles um, and activities that you can help, and it has all of the DBT acronyms on it. So it's a really good one-stop if you just want some of the DBT tools. We want to help them continue to explore attributions, the global ones, everybody always, or I am always, um, versus specific. You know, I may not be good at, you know, public speaking, but I excel at writing or math or video games or whatever they excel at. Encourage them to identify any faults or any self-criticisms specifically instead of globally. It's not I am um, this always and all the time in some general term like bad at school or unlovable. Look for external reasons. Encourage them to look outside themselves for why this might be happening. If they fail their test in, in math, let's talk about, you know, is it because you're dumb at math? And, of course, I wouldn't use the word dumb with a child, but for the purposes of this. Is it because you're not good at math? Or is it because you didn't get enough sleep last night? Because you're sick? Because you studied the wrong material? Because, you know, let's look at some of these other things. Or maybe you didn't do your homework all semester. And, you know, so you didn't learn this stuff. Let's look at some reasons outside of your inherent abilities that may explain this. Because we can, we can address those. Stable versus changeable. You know, if it's an inherent ability, if you don't have, you know, I have very, very poor spatial orientation um, when it comes to anything but loading a dishwasher. <laughs> My son, on the other hand, can recreate the house that he lived in when he was six on the computer and almost exactly. And it just boggles my mind. That is a stable characteristic. I don't, I mean, I could probably improve a little bit, but it's not a trait that I have. Um, changeable things are like, you know, my, my daughter is going through uh, Algebra 1 right now, so, and, and geometry, and I'm learning how to find the surface area of pyramids again. Um, I don't remember that, but that's changeable. It's a skill I don't currently have, but it's a skill I can get. We want to share this with kids. Kids often look up to us as parents or, or role models or caregivers as being perfect. And we want to be able to say to them, you know what? I have no clue every once in a while. So they realize we're not perfect. But we also want to show them what we do when we have no clue. Um, you know, if it involves spatial orientation, I go get Sean's father. And I'm like, Dude, I have no clue. Uh, you need to help him figure that out. And I'll probably hang out and watch just for giggles. But after, you know, 45 some odd years, I know that's probably not a skill I'm going to develop. But if it's something like finding the surface area of a pyramid, then, you know, I'll show Haley, okay, we're going to go to YouTube and we're going to find a video on how to do the surface area of a pyramid. I'm going to review it and then we'll talk about it together. So we want to admit that we're imperfect, but we also want to show them how to address any specific uh, things that need to be addressed. Introduce and explore the concept of locus of control. And this is a new one at this age. Um, we've talked about a lot of other things, but once they get into middle school, we want to start talking about what are the things in this scenario that you had control of or that you will have control of. Awesome. What are the things in this scenario that you won't have control of? Um, if they're talking about public speaking, 
you know, that can be really intimidating for a lot of people. So what is it in this scenario that you don't have control of? Well, you don't have control of the audience. If there's somebody in the audience that's going to be ugly, then they're going to be ugly. You can't fix that. What can you control in that situation, though? You can control how it impacts you. Now, let's talk about how you might do that. So we want to introduce the concept of what's controllable, but we also want to help them see that being in control or thinking they're in control of everything all the time is really stressful and feel, and or feeling like they have control over nothing all the time is equally stressful. Realizing that somewhere in the middle is where their locus of control is, there are some things they have the ability to control and some things they don't. Um, starts helping them uh, reduce the ups and downs of this emotionality because they know one of the things they can control is their own reaction to a situation. Have them start doing self-esteem exercises when they're young. And it doesn't have to be anything big. You know, it doesn't have to be any production. Um, encourage them to identify th things they're good at. Remind them regularly about things that they're good at um, instead of just always harping on, well, you failed your math test or you didn't do the dishes right or this or that. Remember the good stuff. They're hearing the negative stuff and they're just holding on to that going, oh, I failed again. But we want to put that good stuff in there too because it, it seems as a general rule for every negative that they hear, it takes like three or four positives to kind of counterbalance it because those bounce off. They don't hear that as being, I'm good and I'm successful. They heard the, I'm unsuccessful. So we want to try to change the balance of things so they start hearing the, yeah, I'm all that. But they can also handle the constructive feedback. Continue with the concept of acceptance and commitment. Accept whatever it is and who you are. And that's a huge I mean, you can talk for hours about that. Um, help them start looking at acceptance and commitment therapy. We talked about this last time, that being the best you you can be. Um, for those of you who aren't, weren't here, um, you can present a list of value words and have them identify all the words that they want to represent them. And then you can have them pare it down to only eventually, you know, it's a process, pare it down to only the top three. If you could only be known for three things, what would it be? And then you can start talking about what that would look like and what they're doing in terms of their activities and their actions and how they behave that is making them become more like those three things that are so important to them. Uh, another thing you can do as a family, if you're working with a parent, is find a family value that you all agree on, like compassion, or I'll just use that one. Um, and you can talk about that each night at, at dinner or at breakfast in the morning. What did you do today or what are you planning to do today to show compassion? It's easier in the evening because, you know, what did you do today that was compassionate for somebody or for yourself? Because you got to be compassionate to yourself too. And this can help keep those values activities in the forefront and help them stay focused on what's important to them, what they've identified as being important to them. Oops. 
Identity versus role confusion, 12 to 18 years. So middle school all the way through high school, they're trying to figure out who am I? What do I want to do when I grow up? And that is overwhelming. I remember being in college being overwhelmed by that question. <laughs> so you can only imagine what it's like for a 12-year-old trying to figure out, okay, what group do I belong in? What are my interests? What am I good at? The world is their oyster, if you will, but the world has a whole lot more facets than an oyster. And it's hard to find the oyster with the pearl. I was going somewhere with that metaphor. Anyway, search for a sense of self and personal identity through exploration of personal values, beliefs, and goals relating to many roles. Now, in middle school, a lot of it is still interpersonal. Where do I belong? What group do I fit in with? Am I likable and lovable? What is my identity kind of as a, as a friend and as a human? We're not talking about occupation at this point. Fidelity involves being able to accept others, even when there may be ideological differences. So as, as parents, we can help people work through um, any challenges they may have with their friends because, you know, it's unlikely to have every friend you, that you have be exactly on par and have the same exact belief system that you do on everything. So when differences come up, how can you handle them? How can you accept them and still be their friend, even if you have different ideological um, values about things? It's important that we help them see this. As adults, if we're working with someone who didn't successfully develop that fidelity, um, we may have adults who either change their values to fit whatever group they're trying to fit in or whatever relationship they're trying to make work, or they, they may hold fast to their values and have a hard time befriending other people because anytime any little hint of disagreement about anything comes up, they just push that person to the curb. We can help adults start to see um, how to be faithful to themselves as well as their friendships and accept individual differences. Social influences at this age, pubertal self-help is what it's called. You know, it's middle schoolers helping middle schoolers deal with all these growth spurts and, oh my gosh, I have a zit as big as this planet of Mars in the middle of my forehead. What do I do? Um, they help each other and it normalizes what's going on. Social support. They protect each other against turmoil. And obviously, you know, bullying is back up in the safety area. But for social support, they're helping each other going, yeah, this really sucks or, you know, if somebody likes somebody else and they don't like them back how do you deal with it in in middle school the relationships start forming around a lot of this stuff and how do i fit as a person identity formation they're starting to look in the mirror they're starting to form friends that have similar ideologies that have similar interests that mirror a lot of their values um, so again, if they have this really great friend who mirrors nine out of ten of their values, but not the tenth one, do you kick them to the curb or how do you deal with that? So it's important as adults for us to help them figure out what to do with that information. And social influences also help with values clarification. They act as a sounding board. If somebody is taking something to the nth degree, uh, their friends may say, you know what? You are getting all riled up, and there's no point in this. Unfortunately, it can go the other way, too. 
um, from a parent's perspective, you can see children egging each other on in the wrong direction, such as toward alcohol and drugs or um, promiscuous sexual behavior or sexting or a whole host of things that you're just like, oh, please don't. Um, as parents, we need to be able to be there to help our children clarify their own values in terms of some of these hard topics, um, which may be in conflict to what their friends actually believe. The same is true with the exception of pubertal self-help um, in terms of adult formation uh, of adults that are trying to formulate what their identity is because they have been little chameleons for so long just trying to get that external validation from somebody. We need to help them start being able to validate themselves and saying, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm an okay person. Um, and then start looking at, okay, the company you keep, do they reflect your values? And in what ways do they enhance your values or enhance how you feel about you? Failure to establish a sense of identity may cause the individual to be unsure about themselves and their place in society because, again, they're looking for that external validation. They fear at this age isolation, rejection, and failure. They don't want to be the odd man out. They don't want to be the last one picked for dodgeball. Um, they don't want to be the one that everybody snickers as you walk down the hallway, and they're terrified of this. So most of what middle schoolers do, or a lot of what they do, um, is geared towards acceptance from other people. Sometimes that means at the expense of their own values, and that's where adult role models can help out. Pressuring someone into an identity can result in re rebellion in the form of establishing a negative identity or the opposite of what's expected. So if Johnny's expected to grow up to be a lawyer like his dad, Johnny may feel pressured and go the opposite way and have a criminal record as long as my arm before he's 18 because he is not going to do that. Um, attempts to merge the expected identity with the preferred identity can also result in problems because if you're getting pressure from your parents that this is how you should be and you want to be this way and you try to merge them together to get everybody's approval, um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, they started talking about the superwoman stereotype, who was trying to be the mom and the wife and the housewife and the uh, CEO of the company and trying to do everything all the time. Um, and it caused a lot of burnout. So looking at, is that something that you want to do? Or is this your attempt to pacify and get approval from everybody? Tips, become a student of your child or your inner child if you're an adult. Listen to what you want. We all have that little inner child in us that goes, I want ice cream. Um, every once in a while, you can give in to him or her. Uh, but listen to your inner child. And sometimes if that inner child is having anxiety, you need to kind of be the parent and talk yourself down. Talk yourself out of it. Use some distress tolerance skills. Becoming a student of your child means learning what stresses that child out, learning what that child's interested in and what that child thinks he or she is good at and what that child's values are. Insist on and show respect, not only to others, but yourself. Be direct, but not too direct. If you've ever called your kid in or you remember being called in by your parents and they said, come here, sit down, we need to talk. Oh boy, that, that never ends well. Um, 
So sometimes if you're having a discussion with your child, it's easier to say, hey, let's go on a walk. Um, we need to talk about a couple things. And it's less intimidating if you're not sitting there staring at each other, um, feeling like you're getting grilled. Be available when he or she is ready, which is not all the time. So maybe it's at three in the afternoon or maybe they come down and you're just getting ready to go to sleep and they're like, hey, can I talk to you about something? Okay. Um, <laughs> turn on the light and talk to them because they're ready. They're, they're there for you. And also schedule some and teenage eye roll bonding time. We have mandatory family time every week. And it's important to keep that up. That way you're available. Uh, one of the things that I try to do is schedule time where my daughter and I will go out shopping or somewhere because she talks a lot to me when we're in the car and says things that she wouldn't necessarily say at home around her brother and her father. Ask why. Engage in role-value-related discussions with, and model perspective-taking. Encourage openness, and this includes with yourself. If you feel that you need to do something, ask yourself, why? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to, and is it important to my values? Pay attention to what your child or you love to do. Too often, we get kids so wound up in extracurricular activities and school and everything else, we don't even know what they like. So encourage them to keep up with things that they like, but as adults, we need to also pay attention and do some things that we like because life is about living it, not just getting through it. Identify what you're good at and create as many chances as possible to hone skills in that area. If you're a parent, do the same thing for your child. If they have something they really want to learn about, try to help them. Try to nurture that. Keep computers, laptops, and televisions in common areas so you can monitor what's going on help prevent some of the sexting, model and engage children in DBT skills, mealtime mindfulness, encourage focusing on what they're eating and being aware of how they are. Do a check-in with each person at the dinner table. Guide children through distress tolerance skills. Put the ACCEPTS um, acronym on the wall or the IMPROVE acronym on the wall so children can refer to it. Younger children may need to look at it. Um, middle schoolers may not want to ask what it is, but if it's there, they'll probably consult it. Start discussing the concept of radical acceptance, meaning accepting that reality is what it is, that the event or situation is causing you pain, and there's a cause for it. But life can be worth living even with painful events in it. So sometimes you're going to hurt, and it's going to suck, but life can be worth living. And schedule time for non-digital fun. Unplug for a little while. Talk about sexting. Let them experience and accept responsibility for real-life consequences. Teach kids to make it right with others when they make mistakes. We do this not only by telling them to do that, but also by modeling it ourselves. When you discipline, try to discipline behaviors. Explore the rationale and forgive quickly. It's not that you are a bad child. It's you made a really bad choice. Um, explore the rationale that led them to make that choice and, you know, talk it out and then be done with it. Forgive quickly. Do that to yourself too, even when you make poor choices, because we all do. Be careful when kids confess and watch your reactions because they are very, very hypersensitive. 
as adults, if they didn't receive a lot of um, effective parenting, pay attention to your internal critic. You may hear your mom or your dad in the back of your head going, you are such a stupid loser. So it's important to silence that internal critic in our adult clients. Middle school children are starting to explore identity and becoming more able to take other people's perspectives. They want to be a good person in other people's eyes, and fears of isolation, rejection, and failure are paramount. Because of their lack of knowledge and lack of experience, the world and people are still relatively unpredictable, and reasoning can be faulty because of this lack of experience and data. They often still fall into traps of overgeneralization, stereotyping, and all-or-nothing thinking, which whether it's an 11-year-old or a 21-year-old, we can help them address the cognitive distortions in counseling. Middle schoolers are better able to understand the concept of radical acceptance, although it still takes people a while to wrap their head around it. And they're growing as fast as toddlers, so their increased vulnerabilities include awkwardness because of physical changes, hormone fluctuations, needing more sleep, and weight changes or insatiable hunger. So it's important to be aware that any of these things can make them more vulnerable to emotional turmoil. Much of their reasoning is still often emotion-focused, so help them become more fact-focused. Use the CPT um, Challenging Questions Worksheet. Distress tolerance skills are also of paramount importance at this stage because these kids even through high school, have a lot of high emotionality. Adults who experience setbacks during middle school years may need to grieve a lost childhood. They wished, they felt like they should have been able to. Well, they weren't. So helping them let go of those resentments and grieve that lost childhood. Um, they can more easily develop the emotional and self-esteem skills they missed as adults, though, so it won't take as long for them to kind of get up to speed once they grieve that and quit holding on to the I wish I had. Are there any questions? Okay, well, thank you all for attending today, and I will see you um, next week. We will pick up where, where we left off. Happy holidays, and stay safe. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe, either in your podcast player or on YouTube. If you want to attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes, you can subscribe at https colon slash slash allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. You can use coupon code Counselor Toolbox to get 20% off of your current order. If you're a podcast listener, especially on an Apple device, it would be extremely helpful if you would review Counselor Toolbox. To do this on your Apple device, go to the podcast app, search for Counselor Toolbox, select the icon for the podcast, tap the Reviews tab in the middle. You should then see an option to click Write a Review. We love to see five-star reviews, so if there's anything we can do to make this podcast even better for you, please email us at support at allceus.com.